Well, my name's Ramon Mayo, and my wife Yvette and I, we are small group leaders here at the Vineyard. And we want to welcome any first-time guests, and we also want to welcome any of, the, any of you who are listening by podcast. So a few years ago, I had some serious stomach issues. I mean, I was like writhing on the floor in pain, and I even got taken to the emergency room. And in the emergency room, in the doctor's office, uh, the doctor basically ordered me to stay away from three things, caffeinated beverages, red sauce, and chocolate. Yeah, pretty much all the good stuff in life. And I've been doing okay with caffeinated beverages. Every now and then I need a pick-me-up, you know, I got kids. And red sauce, it kind of makes Olive Garden pretty hard. But it was the chocolate. That was like a death sentence. And I've been doing pretty good at abstaining from chocolate for these past, it's been about two or three years. But this year, this year, I've been slipping. And slowly but surely, I've been getting a little nibble here, a little nibble of chocolate there. Until this past fall, I've just been going for like whole pieces of chocolate cake. I'm in the checkout line and, you know, I grab some Snickers, I grab some Twix. And I've just been on a chocolate bench. Chocolate knows my name. I'm going to confess, my name is Ramon and I'm a chocoholic. I keep doing this, and it's gotten so bad that I've even started raiding the kids' trick-or-treat bags, taking out all the chocolate candy, and it's getting to be a problem. And so this past week, I stopped. I had to look at myself in the mirror and say, no more chocolate. It's getting out of control. And now we may laugh at something as innocent as chocolate or, you know, a Twinkie, if you're into those things. But I want you to stop and think, what causes you to pursue the things that you know are bad for you? You know what they can do to you, but you still pursue them. There are all of these temptations around you, and you know that on the other side, the other side of giving in to them, there's nothing but bad, and you do it almost on reflex. You you give in to these temptations without even thinking about it. Now, I just talked to you about the temptation of sugar, milk, and cocoa beans. But there's some serious temptations. There's far more deadly temptations that can sink your life. There are things you can fall into that will ruin your health, ruin your reputation, ruin your family. They'll even ruin your eternal destiny. Falling into temptation can sidetrack you for the rest of your life. Not knowing how to deal with temptation can get you stuck in this cycle of bondage over and over and over again. If you don't know how to deal with temptation, it can keep you from realizing your full potential and what God has for you in your life. If you don't know how to deal with temptation, it's hard to have a rich and satisfying relationship with God. And everybody gets tempted. We all have our button. Everybody's got one. For some of you, it may mean the allure of the opposite sex. For others of you, it may mean money or financial gain. 
Still, for others of you, your button, that button to be pushed is comfort. And as long as you're taken care of, you'll give in to temptation. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about lessons from the life of David. And David was one of the most influential figures in the Old Testament. He was a worshiper and he wrote the majority of the book of Psalms. And he was a great warrior who defeated Goliath. He was the king of Israel. And from David's life, we can learn how not to fall into temptation and what to do when we happen to fall into it. David was someone who was not immune to temptation. He was called a man after God's own heart, but the important thing to remember is that David was just a man. He was susceptible to temptation just like us. A lot of times you can put your heroes on a pedestal, but it's important to remember that they're people just like you. David had his thing. He had his temptation. And today we're going to examine a time in David's life when he gave in to temptation in order to see how we can avoid falling into temptation ourselves. And so I'm titling my message this morning, How to Deal with Temptation. How to Deal with Temptation. If you can turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one on the edge of your row. You can also use your phone or your tablet. We'll also have the words on the screen for you as well. Before I begin, let's pray. God, I just thank you that you are a faithful God and you're faithful to speak to us. God, I just pray that you would just open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. I pray that your words would just pierce our hearts and Bring about life change for us. I pray that this will be a pivotal moment in our walk with you and that you would help us to grow in the people who resist temptation. Do it right now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 2 Samuel 11, starting at verse 1. It reads, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city, Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was and he was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. 
He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy's soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messenger, report all the news of the battle to the king, but he might get angry and ask, why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? Then tell him Uriah the Hittite was killed too. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said. And as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, during, including Uriah the Hittite. We tell, well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. When we get to this passage, King David, David has been king for some time now. Early on in his life, he was anointed to be king when he was just about 16 years old. He was a scrawny little runt, and God had been showing him favor and blessing ever since that time. He was the champion of Israel, and he defeated Goliath. He continued to win victory over Israel's enemies. He outlasted and outwitted the former king Saul, who wanted David dead. David successfully won battles against Israel's enemies, and the land had peace. He even built a palace for himself in Jerusalem, and he brought back the Ark of God. And the Ark was this wooden chest where God's presence appeared. And so David, on all accounts, is living the good life. David is winning, and it seems like all of his battles have been won. But now David has to fight fight another battle. And this is the most crucial battle that he'll ever fight in his life. The battle with himself. The battle with himself. See, many times you think that your enemy is somewhere out there, your boss or your spouse or your kids, but the enemy really 
is inside you. It's the battle with yourself that spills over into everything that you do. When you deal with temptation, you're dealing with an internal enemy that's bent on sabotaging you at every turn. You have a sin nature. You have a sin nature that will stop at nothing to get what it wants. And that's usually not what God wants. And so the first thing we need to think about in dealing with temptation is that we are at war. We're at war. And so knowing we're at war, we can look and see how to deal with our greatest enemy, ourselves. One of the first things we need to do in order to deal with temptation is to passionately pursue God. Passionately pursue God. If we look at the beginning of the passage, we'll see that David was not where he was supposed to be. He was complacent. In chapter 11, verse 1, it says that during the time when kings normally go out to war, David was back home in Jerusalem. He's not commanding the troops. He's not planning out strategy. He's not preparing for a great attack. He's in the palace chilling. And he wouldn't have been in this situation looking at Bathsheba on the roof if he had been out with his soldiers in battle. It's because he stopped pursuing his calling and began to pamper himself in the palace that he wound up in this predicament. He's in the palace. He's not sober. He's not vigilant. His mind is not on the things of God. And that's what often happens. Complacency creeps up on you. It usually happens during the good times, the times when things are going well, the times of blessing. When you're in a crunch and and you're in dire straits and you really need God, that's usually not when it happens. It's hard not to passionately pursue God when you have a need. But it's those times when everything's working out fine. The times when the sky is blue and the sun is shining, your spouse blows you kisses on the way to work. Your kids hug you and smile at you. They ask, when are you coming back? Your boss thinks you're the greatest employee that ever existed. Employee that ever existed. Those are the times when it's easy to become complacent. Those are the times when you begin to relax in your walk with God. And that's when the problem comes. It says that David sent his general Joab to go fight, but he stayed behind. He stayed behind. And I want to ask you a question. Where are you staying behind? Have you ever said to yourself, you know, I think I'll skip small group tonight. I've had a rough week. And besides, there's a TV show I wanted to see and I never got a chance to see it. I think I'll stay behind. Have you ever said to yourself, I'm going to pray, but surely God doesn't want me to get out of bed right now. You hit that snooze button for that one last time, and before you know it, it's two more times, and before you know it, you're out the door with a bagel in your mouth, and you haven't prayed. Yeah, I know they're doing another night of worship, but really, honestly, how many times can we worship God? I mean, worshiping all night, that's just crazy. I think I'll stay behind. And so David stayed behind, and he fell. 
And the thing about staying behind is that it works the opposite way too. When we stay behind, God is still moving. God is still calling us to go forward with him. And when we stay behind, we get left behind. We miss out on what God has for us. And when we're left behind, our defenses are down and we're more susceptible to fall into the trap of sin. You can deal with temptation in the right way when you passionately pursue God and you don't stay behind. And the next way we deal with temptation is to turn away from it. Turn away from it. And here we see David, and he didn't turn away from it. It says in verse 2 that as David looked out over the city, he noticed, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty. And in verse 3, he sent someone to find out who she was. For David, it wasn't just a passing glance. It wasn't just a casual look. David focused his attention on her. His attention became focused on something that he wasn't supposed to have. His attention became focused on something he wasn't supposed to have. And how many times have you become fixated on what you're not supposed to have? Some of your biggest issues stem from fixating your eyes on things you're not supposed to have. In fact, this stems all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2.6, it says that Eve was convinced to eat the fruit that God told her not to eat when she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. She saw that the tree was beautiful and the fruit looked delicious. Listen, what you fix your eyes on becomes the object of your desire. What you fix your eyes on becomes the object of your desire. And that's why some of you need to stay off Facebook. I'm just going to be real. I need to hear that myself. (laughs) You get on there and people are showing pics of their summer romance and you're trying to stay single and celibate and it's doing nothing but getting you open and fanning the flames of desire. You get on Facebook and you see people showing pictures of their vacation and they're on the beach and clinking margarita glasses and you know you struggle with covetousness and getting worked up about money and all it's doing is making you more greedy and dissatisfied. And guys, you see the lady in the store and she's wearing yoga pants and you just don't need to go down that aisle. Turn away from it. You need to do the opposite of what David did and turn away. See, the look wasn't wrong. Being tempted wasn't wrong. We all get tempted, but he looked again and he pursued this woman. He went after her. He he asked about who she was. If you don't want to make a wreck of your life, you need to turn away from those things that tempt you. Turn off the TV. Turn off the Internet. Get off Facebook turn away. The next thing you need to do in dealing with temptation is to be open and honest about your sin. We see that once David was tempted and he fell into temptation, he didn't fess up. Bathsheba becomes pregnant and he tries to cover up his tracks. 
He tries to get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba, and that doesn't work. He even tries to get Uriah drunk in order for him to sleep with Bathsheba, and that doesn't work. And so he comes to Joab and he hatches up this plan. He tells Joab to put Uriah on the front line and remove the supporting troops from where Uriah is stationed. And what happens? Uriah is killed in battle. At least that's what David wants everybody to think. Actually, David's a murderer responsible for Uriah's death. And he tells Joab to send a coded message to let him know that Uriah's dead. And he thinks he's deceived everybody. The truth is, David is the one who's deceived. He thinks nobody sees it, but look at verse 27. It says, the Lord was displeased with what David had done. The Lord was displeased with what David had done. See, God knows everything. And when you think you've covered up your tracks, you haven't covered up your tracks. If you think you've covered everything up and nobody sees it, then you're deceived. You are deceived because God sees it. You can't cover up your tracks with God. And so the best thing to do is live an open and an honest and a transparent life. And as soon as you sin, to get it out in the open and confess. Covering up your tracks just doesn't work. Another thing we see in how to deal with temptation is to be a good steward of your power. To be a good steward of your power. In verse 4, David sends messengers to bring Bathsheba to the palace. Now what you have to keep in mind is that David is the king. He's a king. He has absolute authority, and whatever he wants is what he gets. So in other words, Bathsheba's at the mercy of David. In this situation, he totally takes advantage of his power as king in order to get what he wants. And you may say to yourself, well, I don't have that kind of power. I'm not a politician. I'm not a policeman. But you have power. All of us have some kind of of power. Power is nothing more than ability, and you can use ability for good or for bad. King David had the ability to recruit armies and build palaces, but instead he used his power to sleep with another man's wife and to murder him. And every time you take the ability that God has given you to sin, you, that God has given you to sin against him, you abuse power. The eyes that you were given were not meant to look at porn. The voice that you were given was not meant to gossip and demean others. The hands that you were given were meant to give and not to take. Every time you give in to temptation, you abuse the power that God has given you for good and you use it for evil. Every time you give in to temptation, you abuse the power that God has given you for good and you use it for evil. But it goes even deeper than that. See, David took the power that he had and he became a bully by oppressing others. He oppressed Bathsheba by sleeping with her. He bullied Uriah by arranging for him to die. And, and many times in your pursuit of forbidden things, you can become a bully and oppress others. 
by giving in to the temptation of pornography. You may not realize it, but you're continuing the exploitation of women, women who are sex slaves, women who are drug addicts. You're contributing to the industry that they're in. By giving in to workaholism, you may not realize how much you are pressing your family because of your absence, causing a rift between you and your spouse, causing a rift between you and your kids. By giving in to the temptation of gossip, you bully and oppress others with your words, words that will ring in their ears over and over and over again. You have to remember that everything God has given you is a stewardship. And that just means something he's giving you responsibility over. And you can use that power or abuse it. So the proactive way we deal with temptation is by making an active choice to use our lives, everything we have, everything we are, for good and not for evil. And you see that David went wrong when it came to temptation by becoming complacent, by being deceptive, by being a bully. But the good thing about David is he didn't stay there. You can also look at what David did right after falling into temptation. Yes, he was complacent. Yes, he was deceptive. Yes, he was a bully, but he also learned from his fall. And one of the things we need to do if and when we fall into temptation is to receive rebuke and correction. Receive rebuke and correction. I'm going to repeat that one more time. Receive rebuke and correction. I repeat it because nobody likes that. I don't like it. In chapter 12, 1, Nathan the prophet goes to David and he tells the story of this man with one, this poor man with one small lamb. And he talks about how this rich man who had multiple lambs, he had all of these sheep, he comes and takes this poor man's lamb. And it's an interesting turn of events because David grew up as a shepherd. And so as Nathan is telling this story, David is thinking about how precious lambs are to a shepherd. He's thinking about the times when he was in the wilderness and he had to take care of his father's sheep. And so he's hearing this story and he's starting to get to fume. He's starting to get angry. He's starting to get upset. Because he knew how precious lambs were to him. And Nathan, he knew David and he knew how to speak truth into David's life in a way that he could hear it. But at the same time, Nathan didn't shrink back from speaking truth to David. And so after Nathan finishes telling his story to David, David was willing to condemn a man for stealing another man's sheep. And ironically, he took another man's wife. And so Nathan's reply to David in chapter 12, verse 7 is, you are the man. Now, most of the time, that's a compliment. (laughs) But not this time. This time, it means you're guilty. And sometimes in your life, you need people around you who can speak that truth to you. You are the man. You are the woman. You know better. You know that God has condemned that thing that you've done. You condemned that thing that you've done, and you went ahead and did it anyway. You need people in your life who can hold the mirror up to you and say, you 
are the man. And I'm really glad that I have that here at SSV. For a long time, I didn't have that. People who could give me rebuke and correction. And I'm in a mini group here. And a mini group is just, you know, people that get together and we basically share where we're failing, where we're weak. We're honest about our temptations and where we've fallen into sin. And you can let other folks in the group know how to answer the question, how is your soul? And they'll pray for you. They'll encourage you and they'll correct you when you're wrong. You won't be able to hide your sin because the other members in the group will hold a mirror up to you and tell you you're wrong. You are the man. The next thing we see in how David handled his falling into temptation is that he received forgiveness in the midst of consequences. He received forgiveness in the midst of consequences. So once David heard this story, he confessed his sin, and Nathan let David know that God forgave him. He let David know that he wasn't going to die, but he also let David know that he was going to have collateral damage from his behavior. In chapter 12, 10, Nathan says that David's family will live by the sword and his own household would rebel against him and another man will take his wives and go to bed with them in public. He will be publicly shamed for doing something that he did in secret. In verse 14, if you go down, it says that he, he tells him that the baby that's born to Bathsheba will die. A lot of times you think you can just sin and ask forgiveness wipe your hands, and just move on. It's not that simple. Go ask somebody who struggled with alcohol for years about their liver, and they'll tell you that God has forgiven them, but they still have to deal with the consequences. Go ask somebody who's had an affair, who's committed adultery about the consequences for their family. God has forgiven them, but they still may be living with the consequences of a lack of trust or even a child out of wedlock. When I was eight years old, I was exposed to pornography. And that wasn't my fault. But it set me on a path of looking at inappropriate pictures of women that weren't my wife. And the one thing that scientists have now discovered is that pornography rewires your brain to think of the opposite sex as objects. And so for years, I've struggled with rewiring my brain to desire uh, stimulation and intimacy in the way that God has designed it. It's a serious consequence. But I'm forgiven. God loves me, and I've had to struggle with the consequences of my action, but I'm forgiven. And when you look at the trajectory of David's life, you can tell that he wrestled with the consequences of his actions. This becomes a bad mark on his record. And that one mistake that he did leads to all these other consequences. But here's the thing. You never hear about David committing adultery again. Sometimes the consequences are there to give you pause, to make you stop and think whether you want to do this again. But here's the most important thing. His sins were forgiven. His relationship with God was restored. 
It's good to know that in the midst of the consequences that you face because of your sin, God will still embrace you. God will still let you experience his love and his goodness. And I just feel like I need to say this to you in the room today, that even though you're in the midst of struggling with your consequences that come as a result of your sin, God accepts you and he forgives you. And he still wants you to experience his goodness. He's a good, good father. The last thing you need to do in dealing with temptation is to truly repent of your sin. And that's what I believe David did. You never hear about David doing anything like this again. In 1 Kings 15 and 5, it reads, For David had done what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and obeyed the Lord's commands throughout his life, except in the affair concerning Uriah the Hittite, except in the affair concerning Uriah the Hittite. See, David fell into other temptations, but you never hear about him committing adultery, being deceptive, or murdering anybody again. So what does it mean to repent? When I was younger, I used to think repenting meant that you were just sorry and sad. But sometimes feeling sad is just the result of being caught. It doesn't mean you've changed your mind. It doesn't mean that you've changed your mind about what you've done. It just means that you're caught. And so in in 1 Samuel 15, Saul, David's predecessor, was disobedient. And he got caught. And he was sorry. He was sad after the prophet Samuel rebuked him. But he didn't repent. He asked Samuel to pray with him and continue to endorse him so he would look good in front of everybody else. That's not repentance. Repentance means that you realize that a thing is wrong and you turn from it. You stop going your way and doing what you want to do. And you begin to go God's way and you do what he wants you to do. Here's repentance. This summer... We took a trip to Pittsburgh, went back to Pittsburgh, and the way back is going on I-80. It's a familiar route to me. We've driven it multiple times, and so we get on I-80, start driving. We get into Indiana. Everything looks normal, and I just start coasting. I stop paying attention, and eventually I start looking and going, this landscape doesn't look familiar. I don't remember these trees being here. I don't remember this restaurant sign being here. And I look up and I see a big sign and it says, Pure Michigan. (laughs) I was going the wrong way for half an hour into Michigan and I had to change my mind in order to go the right way. I still had to deal with the consequences of being an hour late, but I was going in the right direction. And this is what God has called you to when it comes to dealing with temptation, to keep changing your mind about the sins that tempt you, to keep changing your mind about the things that you've fallen into and go in the right direction. And that's what David did. Worship team, you can come up. David handled temptation in the wrong way. He stopped passionately pursuing God. He didn't turn away from his sin. 
He tried to cover everything up and cover his tracks. He abused his power. David blew it. And many of us have blown it. You haven't pursued God with passion. You haven't turned away from your sin. You cover up your tracks. You abuse your power. We've blown it. David blew it, and we've blown it many, many, many times. And quite frankly, you want to give up. You feel like a failure. That's because temptation is meant to show you who you really are. Temptation is meant to show you who you really are. It's meant to point out where you're weak, where you're broken. The thing is, God wants to be there for you where you're weak. God wants to be there for you when you're broken. David was called a man after God's own heart. And I believe that was in anticipation of the true man after God's own heart who would come years later, Jesus. And Jesus is the one who can walk with you through temptation. Jesus is the one who can give you passion to pursue God. Jesus is the one who can help you turn away from sin, who can help you to stop abusing your power and using your power for good instead of evil. He's the one who can walk with you when you, when you feel overwhelmed. He's the one who can give you a heart that's open to receive correction and rebuke. It's through him that you can truly turn around and go in God's direction. And right now, I believe Jesus wants to fill you with his spirit so that when temptation comes and you think that it's too overwhelming, you think that you can't resist, Jesus can give you power to overcome it. That's how you deal with temptation. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your power that's available to us. Many times we pray for the wrong things. We pray for a new car, a new house. We pray for a spouse or we pray for just less pressure on the job. But God, you have so, so many things that are better for us. And one of those things is power to resist the things that corrupt us, that cause us to fall into sin and into to ruin. God, I pray right now that you would just empower us to resist temptation. I pray, God, that as we leave here, God, that you would just give us just hearts that would passionately pursue you, that would go all out after you. Hearts that would not put on the brakes, but that would just accelerate into what you have for us. God, I pray that even right now, that those who have been hiding their sin, that they would just confess, that they would just be open and honest. And that forgiveness will be received, God. Forgiveness for something that was done even this morning, even in the past week, even years ago. God, I pray that your spirit would just rain down on us right now. Do it today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.